Great, thank you. Pastor Bob. Hey, hey, good morning. morning. Sure to check in on Facebook if you haven't already done that. Mm. How are we doing? Great. How are you enjoying this summer? (laughs) Don't speak too soon, right? How many of you have seen really big snowstorms in March or April or even May? We won't talk about the July ones, but no, there have been some of those too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's time for our morning wake up your brain exercise, so I want you to just kind of engage here, and uh, let me ask you a question or two. Would you rather visit the world 100 years into the past or 100 years into the future? And would you rather have a beautiful house and an ugly car, or an ugly house and a beautiful car? Somebody said a beautiful house and an ugly husband, so, you know. I, I heard every word you said. We have microphones under those chairs. Would you rather age from the neck up only, or from the neck down only? Now, Bob, I never thought of that. That's why you're here this morning. Some of you are engaging. Some of you have already turned it off. Would you rather eat anything and everything and never put on weight, or have the ability to read people's minds? Like, would you like to be a fat mind reader, in other words? Now, give your neighbor a high five or a handshake and say, I'm glad you're here. Don't overdo it. We don't want to be known as too friendly at church. More people will come. And our scripture today is... Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16 particularly, I would hope that you would maybe uh, take time this week and read that whole chapter. I think it would do us all uh, a lot of good if we read it maybe once a month just to re- be reminded. So if you haven't found it already, please find it, please mark it, let's read it, and um, I'm going to ask that you um, follow along with me or read with me either one as we look at Matthew 5, starting at verse 13. Just wait till everybody gets there or gets their mind there. And this will set the stage. Feel free to read with me if you'd like to. You are the salt. Of, this is Jesus speaking, by the way. This is Jesus speaking to his followers. Okay? You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for your word this morning and thank you for the promise that where your word is being rightly divided, that you are in the midst and the Holy Spirit is here to empower, to enlighten, and to energize every word, every thought, and uh, every action. And so, Lord, as we look into the word this morning, may our hearts and minds and souls be open. Lord, not just open to hear, but also open to do that which you're bidding us to do. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. Amen. A message this morning entitled, To Be Salt. Jesus gives us no real explicit explanation of some of these word pictures that he uses. But I saw a word picture a while back and I wanted to share it with you. And of course, it's from my favorite theologian who is Charlie Brown. And it's a Peanuts cartoon. It showed Peppermint Patty talking to Charlie Brown. And she said, guess what, Chuck? The first day of school. And I got sent to the principal's office. And it was all your fault. Chuck, it was your fault. He said, my fault? How could it be my fault? First day of school. Why, did you say, why do you say everything, everything, everything is my fault? She said, you're my friend, aren't you? Chuck, you should have been a better influence on me. (laughs) Now, Peppermint Patty, you know, she was right. She, She was seeking to pass the buck. But in a very real sense, what she said was right. Because we should be a good influence on our friends. We certainly do have an influence for good. Or for bad. So this morning, I want to open a short series on believers being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And this is, of course, found as a part of the greatest sermon that was ever preached, and we call it the Sermon on the Mount. It was preached by the Lord himself, and the theme of that great sermon was how people of the kingdom of heaven are to live their lives day after day. It's not high, lofty language. It's not uh, theological treaties. It's just simple living instruction. Jesus was saying, those who are my disciples should affect their world in a positive way by the way in which they live, period. You say, well, that's not hard to understand. Sure isn't, but it's mighty hard to do. It's mighty hard to put into action. This morning, let's deal with believers being called to be salt of the earth. And in part two, we're going to deal with believers being called to be light of the world. Now, in Matthew 5, those verses we just read, verses 13 through 16 particularly, we read those words where Jesus said, you are, I want to repeat them because if he said them, they're important. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, that is, its saltiness, its character, how shall it be seasoned? At that point, it's good for nothing but to throw it out and be trampled underfoot by men. I'll explain that too in a moment. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a a basket or a bushel, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, your good works. And glorify your Father, not you, your Father in heaven. 
Now, Jesus gives, doesn't, as I said earlier, doesn't give us an explicit explanation or long, drawn-out uh, understanding of what these word pictures using salt. Everybody, everybody know what salt is? Anybody here not know? All right. Light. Everybody know what light is? Okay. Um, and, and I say that just, just because I know everybody knows what salt is, and I know everybody knows what light is. Down in the parable of the sower in chapter 13, he's telling us exactly what he wants us to understand. But here, however, the reader, okay, is, is left to come to an understanding of what these images, salt on the one hand, light on the other hand, what they really mean on the basis of how these things are used in the world around them. And if you understand that, then you're going to understand what he was saying. We must then seek to understand what is it that we should understand about salt. And very importantly, this morning I want to tackle how are Christians like salt? How are Christians? Like salt. Well, first, Christians, like salt, are of infinite value. Jesus said to his followers these words, You are the salt of the earth. But we miss something in the modern English uh, translation. The King James Version translates this verse, Ye are the salt of the earth. Now, ye is just a good southern word. It means y'all. And that means you all, for you people that are not of southern origin or never lived down south. Jesus is saying, you, all of you, are the salt of the earth. So now that we're partway into this message, do not exclude yourself. Do not take yourself out of this equation. Do not say, oh, this pastor's preaching to everybody in this room and they need it. Everybody here does. Except that doesn't include me. No, it includes all of us. Jesus refers to his handful of basically uneducated disciples, and everybody in this room is far, far more educated than those early disciples in book knowledge and in that type of thing. I don't know if we're more educated in living life or understanding the principles of life, and so he refers to them as the salt of the earth because he knew that they could identify with that and that they would know exactly what he's saying. Matter of fact, For them to be called the salt of the earth was a distinction. It was a a term of great dignity. Let me explain. Jesus is bestowing this almost an honor on his followers when he makes this statement. It's a compliment. What a great compliment. You see, salt was a necessity of life. It wasn't just something. It wasn't an add-on. It, was something, it wasn't something you just put on everything and the doctor says, don't use any of that. It was a necessity if you want it to live. In ancient days, the value that was attached to salt is hard for us to calculate today. Salt was so important, hear me, sometimes, many times, during the Roman culture, it was used for money. The Roman soldiers of Jesus' day were at times paid with salt. In fact, our English word of today, salary, comes from the Latin word salarium, which actually referred to the payments made to the soldiers, how? With salt. 
And we still use the phrase today saying of someone that they are either someone is or is not what? Worth their salt. That's where that came from. When that was coined, salt was more valuable than gold. We don't think much about salt in those terms because we can get as much of it as we want, as often as we want, for whatever we want. We can get it in a pure form. We can get it however we want it. We can get it kind of doctored up a bit, whatever, but we can get it. And when I say salt, most of us have an image in our heads. It's that little bottle with holes in the top that sits on your table or on your counter or at the restaurant or wherever you might be. But when you are completely dependent on salt to preserve your food, and when it is so valuable, hear me, my friend, that it is used in the place of money, you get a completely different perspective on salt. So let's watch this. Why does salt preserve things? Because salt has a superpower over water. Big History zooms in to the microscopic world of salt. We're looking at a clump of salt molecules in tissue that's filled with water. As the water molecules float by, they lock onto the salt and pull it apart. The salt molecules separate and draw the water out of the tissue. Without water, the microbes that cause decay die, and the dried tissue lasts for months or years. The discovery of salt's power to preserve meat, fish, vegetables, and even mummies was a great step forward for civilization. In a world before electricity, salt was mankind's refrigerator, the key way to preserve food from one harvest to the next. One of the great problems for agricultural societies is how to preserve things, and salt is the answer. The word salami, an ancient form of salted meat, comes from the Latin word sal, or salt. So do the words sausage, sauce, and salsa. Since salt saved both food and people, so does the word salvation. And since salt was so valuable that the Romans paid their soldiers with it, so does the word salary. Interesting, huh? And you see kind of where this is going. Now, because we live in a part of the world where we have an abundance of food, we don't understand at all the monotony of the diet of those who, live, uh, it, 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 who lived in Jesus' day or back in that early time. And for most of those who live in third world countries, even today, we don't understand their diet. Uh, right, mission team? Right. I mean, in, in a great portion of the world, rice is the common food. And three times a day they eat it. 
in parts of, of Africa today, the subsistence food, just to subsist, just to stay alive, is uh, cornmeal. And at every meal, it's cornmeal. And what do we have? Cornmeal. What did we have? Cornmeal. What do we have yesterday? Cornmeal. What do we have next week? Cornmeal. Every meal, every day. In fact, in the Swahili, the word cornmeal is posha, P-O-S-H-A, and it means daily ration. Cornmeal is given to workers on a plantation. I read of missionaries, uh, folks who were missionaries to Tanzania, and they told of the local dish called ugali, pronounced ugali. They said it was appropriately named because as soon as you tasted it, you wanted to say, oh, golly. <laughs> Without salt to make this stuff palatable, it, he, the missionary said it would be difficult to continue to swallow that same monotonous food time after time after time, day after day after day. In Job chapter 6, if you're make, taking notes, and verse 6, the Bible asks this question, can flavorless food be eaten without salt? That's a rhetorical question. And for this one reason alone, salt is indispensable. So Christians, like salt, are of infinite value. I want you to just kind of sit up and look proud and think, wow, in God's sight, I'm of infinite value. And if you wanted me to prove that, I'd be glad to take a side trip here and prove it, but all I have to do is point to the cross. If you don't believe you're of an inestimable value, and you're worth more than anything that you could even imagine, I want you to just look at the cross of Calvary. Just remember the price that was paid for you to be who you are and be where you are and have what you have and be called a Christian, a follower of Christ. So Christians like salt are of infinite value. Secondly, let me just point out that Christians like salt act as a preservative. Now, in Jesus' day... Salt was important for survival because it was the only way they had to preserve meat. You saw a little bit of that on, on the history video. But obviously, they were not as privileged as we are. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have refrigeration of any kind. So salt became very important in their ability to preserve their food. Now, the salt wasn't just added later. Listen to this very carefully, and you saw it happening there. The salt was rubbed into the meat or into the fish or whatever it was before it was stored. Salt was used to arrest or to hinder the process of decay. So too, Christian, you are given the task of arresting the decay of our world and our society. And let me just tell you something. Our, our world is decaying faster than we can preserve it. Christianity has, in fact, had a profound, profound positive effect on the world. I don't want to overlook this, and I don't, want, I don't want you to miss it, and I want you to be aware of the background of Christianity. The most dramatic impact of Christianity on the world, I think, is that it has attached new value to human life. Prior to Christianity, infanticide and abandonment of children, that was a common practice. Hospitals as we now know them began through the influence of Christianity. The Red Cross was started by an evangelical Christian. 
Almost every one of the first 123 colleges and universities in the United States alone has Christian origins founded by Christians, hear this, for Christian purposes. And if I named some of those colleges, you would be shocked beyond belief. The same could be said of orphanages, adoption agencies, and the humane treatment of the mentally ill and the disabled and the disadvantaged. The list goes on and on. I could stand here all day giving you more and more information of the dramatic impact of Christianity in our world. And if you want to read more, read James Kennedy's book, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born? You see, Christians continue to have a positive benefit on our world. We're here to have a benefit to the world. We're here to preserve the world and the society. We're here to send forth a message that will change this world. We still have a positive impact. We still are a benefit to the world. Whether we use it or not is our choice. As a moral antiseptic, Christians keep the corruption of society at bay. How? By opposing moral decay by their very lives and by their words. But there's a rather horrifying new trend today, and I don't want to insert this into the thought right now, but I have to let you know. And this comes from George Barna, who is the great uh, church growth statistician. And he says, research shows today, and I quote, and this is very up-to-date stuff, the average Christian in the average church, we're talking here in North America, is almost indistinguishable from the rest of society. The fundamental moral and ethical difference that Christ can make in a life and in how we live is missing in many places and in many people. When Still quoting, when Christians cheat in business or lie or steal or cheat on their spouses at the same time or at the same statistical level of those who say they are not Christians, something Mr. Barna says, is horribly wrong. End of quote. See, we can call ourselves anything we want to call ourselves. But it's not in what we call ourselves that makes the difference. And I quoted, or I spoke of D. James Kennedy just a moment ago, a great evangelical leader, and I'll tell you, the world misses him. He was single-handedly the pro-life, the originator of that whole idea of let's get active here and let's get moving in this pro-life message and let's send it out there and and thank God for him. I wish he were with us today. But in in his book, Led by the Carpenter, here's what he said. A man walked into a little mom and pop grocery store and asked, do you sell salt? (laughs) <laughs> said the pop, the proprietor. Do, do we sell salt? Just look. And pop showed the customer one entire wall of shells stacked with nothing but salt. Morton salt, iodized salt, kosher salt, sea salt, rock salt, garlic salt, seasoning salt, Epsom salts, every kind of salt imaginable. Wow, said the customer. Hey, you think that's something, said pop? That's nothing. Come look. And Pop led the customer to a back room filled with with shelves and shelves and bins and cartons and barrels and boxes. Do we sell salt? 
Unbelievable, said the customer. Hey, you think that's something, said Bob. Come on, come on. I'm going to show you salt. And he led the customer down a few steps into a huge basement, five times larger than the previous room that he'd been in. It was filled wall to floor to ceiling with every imaginable form and size and shape of salt, even had the huge 10-pound salt licks for the cow pasture. Incredible, said the customer. You really do sell salt. And after a dramatic pause, Pop said, no, that's just the problem. We never sell salt. But that salt salesman, who boy, does he sell salt. <laughs> I'm glad you responded. I'm really glad you responded. Because, no, but the moral of that story is this. Salt, listen, Christian, salt that stays on the shelf does not do any good at all. This guy had a store full of it. He had a storeroom besides full of it. He had a basement full of it, right to the ceiling. What good was it doing anybody? Absolutely none. Salt, Christian, are you listening? On the shelf is good for nothing at all. And if we as Christians lose the qualities of Christ-likeness in our lives, that is, our saltiness that makes us distinct and become like the society around us that's trying ever so hard to envelop us and to swallow us up, we no longer will have a positive impact and we will become a hindrance instead of a preservative. Now, according to Scripture, prior to our Lord's return to earth, the church will be removed from this world. Hallelujah! You're not excited about that? That's the next event in prophetic history. We're going to be caught up in the air to meet the Lord. So I'll say it again because I can't believe that one. According to the Scripture... Prior to our Lord's actual return to earth, the church will be removed from this world. Woo! I know you're looking for the undertaker, but I'm looking for the upper taker. I'm just praying to be here when he comes to take us up. Wow. And when Christians are fine, do you ever stop for just like a couple of minutes and think about this? When Christians are finally fully removed from the world scene, I can hardly go on just, just picturing that. Because not only are all the Christians going to be gone, the, the impact of the Holy Spirit of God is going to be gone. Wow. Wow. And all hell on earth will literally break loose. 2 Thessalonians 2.7. If you're one who kind of tries to read it and study it and research it. 2 Thessalonians 2.7 says this. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. This was 2,000 years ago, folks. So where are we today? 
Hey, we're 2,000 years closer to the rapture. Amen? Yeah. But then it goes on to say, Paul says, only he, that's Christ, who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Wow. It's just being held back right now. It's just being held back. How many of you have been following the story of the flooding in California? And, every, and I don't mean any disservice to the people in California or make fun of anything, but I've got to tell you, every time I hear that story, I think of the impending danger that we're all living in spiritually in our society. It's like something's holding the dam back. It's just the Spirit of God working somewhere through someone. I don't know who. I hope it's somebody in this room. But just holding it back because one of these days, guess what? That dam too, that spiritual dam is going to break. And you think Mount Shasta and the Shasta Dam is bad. You, you just haven't seen anything yet. When this thing lets go, it's going to engulf this whole world. Yeah, we're already in dangerous times. Yeah, we're already in wicked times. But I want to tell you, 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul said, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Now, if you sit here today and say, yeah, but it's improved a lot since then, you're really living in the dark ages. You've really missed two or three centuries, or maybe more. So Christians, can I just punch this one more time? Christians, like salt, must act as a preservative, a preservative for our world. And then thirdly, Christians, like salt, are to promote thirst. See, in the, in the arid climate, or in athletic competition, or things of that nature, it's used to promote thirst. Christians are to make Christ attractive and desirable. Christians, see, we're his hands, we're his feet, we're his mouthpiece, and we, oh God, help us. We are to make our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, attractive and desirable. I'm going to say what I said last message. This has nothing to do with going to church. This, is, this have, has nothing to do with putting on a pious attitude for a couple hours on a Sunday morning. Nothing at all to do with that. In Titus chapter 2, verse 9, and add verse 10 to that, the Apostle Paul tells Christian servants that they must act in such a way that they may, listen to these words that Paul used, adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. When you see words like that in Scripture, stop if you don't know what they mean. And the word adorn is a Greek word that, from which we get our word cosmetics. And it's used to describe the arrangement of jewels in a manner to set off their full beauty. The idea here is that we as Christian servants, that's any of us and all of us, have the power through our exemplary behavior to make the Christian life and the Christian faith beautiful, beautiful, beautiful to those who are outside of it. That's what it says in Titus 2, 9, 10. We have the power through our exemplary lives to make the Christian life and the Christian faith 
very, very beautiful to those who are not in it. Whenever we as Christians are introduced into a setting, whether it's a social setting, a workplace setting, something related to either of those or something different, the unbelievers should see evidence of the difference that Jesus Christ makes in our lives. I don't necessarily get all get all feeling good about myself when someone says, well, I know, Bob, you're religious. I have no use for that word. Or I know you're a church guy, and I know you... Um, that's good if, if they want to look at religion, and it's good if they want to look at church. But i got to tell you, uh, I, I, don't, I don't want them to look at church, and I don't want them to look at religion. I want them to see Christ. Isn't it interesting that the first three letters of salvation are S-A-L? I want them to see the salt. I want them to see the character. I want them to see the flavor of our eternal Savior. And we have that ability. You know what? Those who are outside of the faith ought to be able to look at us and say, can't figure it out. I don't know. I just don't know what they have. I can't figure it out. But whatever it is, I want it. I want it. I want a piece of that action. I want to be identified with it. I don't know what makes that guy so strange, but... Whatever it is, it's something special. And the more I try to trip him, the more he comes out on top. And I'm thinking, I'd like to have what he's got. I'd like to have what she's got. I want to give you some more salt facts that I kind of brushed over. And I'm going to go back to that if you don't mind upstairs. Here are some salt facts. If you were to evaporate a ton of water from the Pacific Ocean, you would get approximately 79 pounds of salt. Isn't that incredible? If you were able to evaporate a ton of Atlantic water, you would yield about 81 pounds, give or take. And from the Dead Sea, if you were able to evaporate a ton of water, you would get almost 500 pounds of salt. Now, these statistics you laugh at, but they demonstrate something. They demonstrate that the earth's great bodies of water vary greatly in their degree of saltiness. So do Christians. And Jesus said to all assembled and to all to come, you and I included, that we are the salt of the earth. We may all have different levels of salt content, but we are the salt of the earth. We're very, very, very valuable. We ought to act as preservative. And thirdly, we ought to promote thirst, as we've just seen. Also, Christians, like salt, can lose their usefulness. 
Jesus says that if the salt loses its flavor at the end of verse 13, and you can insert the word saltiness, it is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by man. And I said I'd come back to that, so here we are. Technically, scientifically, salt cannot lose its saltiness. Sodium chloride is a stable compound. But in the part of the world where Jesus lived, salt was collected from around the Dead Sea, where the crystals that we saw earlier were often contaminated with other minerals. And these crystallized formations were full of impurities. And since the actual salt was more soluble than the impurities, the rain could wash out the salt, which made what was left of very little worth. Why? Because it lost its saltiness. And when this happened, you know what happened to the salt? Because it was no good for anything that they usually used it for? It was thrown out. And you know where it was thrown? Along the travel ways. We use asphalt. No, they use salt. And the more it was walked on, the more it got tramped down hard. So it says, well, it was no good if it loses its salt. It's, just, it, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trod on by the feet of men. That's what it means. This is no good now, so we'll throw it out on the pathway. And people will walk on it, and it'll become a stable a stabilizing effect, and it'll also keep down some dust. When the salt was leached out, let me say this. It still looked like salt, but it lost its taste. And that's a statement in itself. When it was leached out, it still looked like salt, but it lost all taste. You know the integrity and the effectiveness can be leached out of a Christian's life by the constant flow of the world's values going through that life. One of the most famous statements in all the world, certainly in modern day history, when Mahatma Gandhi was the spiritual leader of India, he was asked by some Christian missionaries, Mr. Gandhi, what is the greatest hindrance to Christianity in India? His one word reply was, Christians. I wonder what the greatest hindrance to Christianity in America today is. Philip Keller wrote a book called Salt for Society, and he wrote this powerful, thought-provoking statement. I want to quote it. He said, The peculiar property of salt is that even though it may have lost its pungency, it still retains one very devastating potency. This rare and remarkable material can still destroy plant life on land. The same principle applies in the case of the Christian. Either our lives are counting for good and for God, or they are making an impact for evil and the enemy. 
The way we live, Keller says. The things we say. The attitudes we entertain. The lifestyle we adopt are continuously producing either positive or negative results in society. So our lives, whether we are aware of it or not, either count for God or against God. There simply is no middle ground. End of quote. Thank you, Philip Keller. This becomes very, very important. This becomes very crucial and very critical to our lives as believers. So Christians, like salt, can lose their usefulness. Let it not be said of us. Let it not be said of any one person here that we've lost our usefulness. It looks like salt, but it has no taste has no attraction. There's nothing about it that anybody wants. And even if they tried it and tasted it, they'd probably spit it out. Let that not be said. And next, Christians like salt. I find this interesting. See, you could preach these first three or four things that I've mentioned and keep preaching them and people listen to them and they take notes or they memorize some of the verses and they, they understand the concept. But I wonder how many have ever thought of this. Christians like salt must have contact to have any influence. <laughs> See, we've already noted, we've already put it down as one of our main themes that the Christian is to be a preserving force in the world. So wherever God has placed you, wherever God has placed that Christian, you are to be a preserving force. You are to be actively preserving and representing and living and showing and exhibiting the beauty and the grace and the mercy and the love and the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the salt never did any good when it was sitting on Pop's shelf in Pop's store and the meat was somewhere else. To be effective, the salt had to be removed from the shelf, taken out of its container, and rubbed into that meat. And I mean rubbed, I mean worked into that meat. And in a similar way, Christians are are, are to allow God to take them into his hands and to use them and 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 to work with them and to develop them wherever he has placed them. M.R. Dahan used to say, bloom where you're planted. Everybody wants to be somewhere else. God has made so many mistakes and he's made another one by putting you where you are. Bloom where you're planted. Now mark it well. Whenever the church, and I don't mean faith community fellowship, I mean local fellowships as part of the body of Christ. Whenever the church becomes a salt warehouse, it has missed out on the lesson that salt 
must make contact to have any effect. Oh, God forbid. Oh, precious Lord, save us from ever allowing ourselves to become the salt warehouse. Now, I'm going to leave this text for now, but before I leave it, I'm afraid, and and I am afraid, it is a fear of mine, that many of you have heard teaching and preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. You probably know where to find it, or it wouldn't take you too long. And some of the scriptures that we know a little bit, we we get very familiar with. And I think the Sermon on the Mount is one of those. So I want you to notice something about this passage in in chapter 5. I want you to see and hear, gathered there with his disciples, what Jesus says and what Jesus does not say. He does not say, you all can be the salt of the earth. He didn't say that. He does not say, you all should be the salt of the earth, because Bob and I said so. How much authority do you need? He did not say, it certainly would be nice for that world that you're living in, for you to be the salt of the earth and act like it. He did not say that. He did not say any of those things. But we become so familiar with certain passages of Scripture that in our heads, we've got it all figured out, but it isn't at all what Jesus said. Here is what our Lord Jesus said. He said, you are the salt of the earth. And in the Greek, literally that means you and you alone, and you and every other Christian, he's looking at them, and he's looking at us, and he's looking in that day, and he's looking 2,000 years down the road, and he's saying, you, believer, are the salt of the earth. To be the salt, you don't have to be spectacular. To be the salt, to be salt, you don't have to be sensational. Hey, to be salt, you don't even have to be successful by any of the world's standards. Because the world is not our standard. Amen? Amen. To be salt, you just have to affect our little corner of the world. And if everybody who names the name of Christ, I didn't say everybody that looks like salt, I said everybody who names the name of Christ and still has that flavor, that saltiness, were to do that in his or her corner of the world, it wouldn't take too long for this world to be totally transformed. So let's all read that last statement that's up here. And let's, let's make it personal, okay? And, and just where it says we, maybe you ought to say I. But let's say it. Let's say it together. Let's, 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 let's agree to take hold of this and embrace it. It's not something you work at. It's not something I'm going to try harder. It's not something I, uh, okay, Bob, I'll come to church more often. It's not about any of that. 
It's just be. Be. Be what you already are. To be salt, we just have to affect our little corner of the world. Why? Because we are called to be salt. To be salt. So, be salt. And God bless you.